If you'll please join me in prayer. Almighty Father, as we come before you on your day, the day you established by your rest, we also rest this day and honor you as well. For we know that the times are evil and we need to get closer to you in all things. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, that this Sabbath day, this Sabbath worship, will be a special blessing for all. We pray for those that are undergoing stress right now, have a need that you would be their Yahweh Rapha, comfort them, be with them, and guide them into the truth of your word, that they may understand that sometimes these things come upon us, but we just overcome them by the power of the Lamb. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll bless this day, this gathering, and that uh, all things be done in your honor and glory. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. And you may all be seated. I want to welcome those here today and also the Sabbath family that uh, Javon mentioned, uh, all those hundreds of people across the country and in different countries who are joining us today. I have a riddle for you, and I wonder if you could answer it for me. There are three individuals. Each of these is one, but three in number. One is his own father and his own son. The other is neither father nor son, but both. The son was begotten by the father, but existed before he was begotten. He is just as old as his father, and the father is just as young as the son. The third individual is the same age as the other two, and equal to the other two, having proceeded from both. Any ideas? I think you probably have an idea. The answer is a teaching fundamental most to most Bible professing denominations. In fact, it's so fundamental that if you don't believe it, you're not considered a true Bible believer, a legitimate believing group as well, unless you hold firmly to this unwavering belief and teaching. Of course, I'm talking about the Trinity doctrine according to some kind of mathematical, celestial math expressed by the Trinity. One times one is three. Three times one is one. And if we take two from three, there are three left. If we add two to one, we have but one. Each one is equal to himself and to the other two. Yes, it is a mystery for sure. Incomprehensible, illogical, Irrational, yes. Sustainable by, by scripture? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. After 2,000 years, there seems to be no end to the questions about the three-in-one doctrine. Even being suspect in itself and about certain related questions to that doctrine. Like, what is the nature of Yahshua? Like, are Yahshua and Yahweh both redeemers? There are verses of scripture that cause confusion. If the father and son are both referred to as savior, which one died? You'll hear people say, well, GD died for us. What do they mean? We hear that all the time. He died for our sins. Well, let's begin. We'll start very simply to try to get through this maze of craziness. Get out your strong concordance and look up the word Trinity, if you would. 
I don't nobody has one here, but uh, you got to have the, the concords and not just the uh, dictionary. But uh, look up the word Trinity for me. Trinity rhymes with eternity. And that's how long it's going to take you to find the word Trinity in the Bible. So to save time, I'll just tell you that there is no such word Trinity in the entire Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. That's our first clue that something's rotten in Denmark. Considering the universal acceptance of this belief has a standard orthodoxy. You know, amazingly, this vaunted litmus test for defining the true worshiper has no trace in the word anywhere, nowhere. The word triune isn't there either, or trifecta, that's not there either. Nothing. Nothing talking about a three in relation to Yahweh and Yahshua. The Encyclopedia Britannica has this to say about it. Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament. Even a secular authority knows better. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is just as direct. Quote, the term Trinity is not a biblical term. And we are not using biblical language when we define what is expressed by it. In point of fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is purely a revealed doctrine. Oh, that's where it comes from. It's it's been revealed. What do the editors really mean? Major denominations say the same thing. It's a revealed doctrine. We don't understand it. It was revealed. So we ask, well, revealed by whom? How was it revealed? And to whom was it revealed? If the Trinitarian doctrine is foundational, it should be clearly seen everywhere in the word, just like Yahweh's name, just like the Sabbath. You see it all through the scriptures. If it's an important, essential doctrine, why can't we find it? The only truth we need, in fact, the only one we can absolutely rely on is what we find in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of Yahweh and is profitable for... Notice these things, doctrine, which it just means teaching, for reproof, which means rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of Elohim may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What is that telling us? All we need is scripture. Don't have to go outside of scripture. Don't have to say, uh, you know, I got a special revelation. All you need is scripture. Thoroughly furnished means to equip fully. The word, Yahweh's word, is our revealed truth. And that's what we need. And that's all we need for perfecting the saint. Go outside the word and you're risking trouble. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. This is Yahshua speaking. Your word is truth. I have a little problem when someone comes and presents something revealed directly to them. And if it actually happened, if it's, if it's legitimate, then I, I would tell them, well, that's fine. Yahweh revealed something to you. If he wants to reveal it to me, he's going to reveal it to me or anyone else he wants to reveal it to. But he's already revealed me the truth. So uh, if Yahweh has something extra, he contradicts his Bible for the truth. Our standard for life is his word, which he already revealed as his inspired scriptures. Inspired means Yahweh breathed. It actually was his own words put down on paper by uh, you know, the patriarchs, the scribes, and so forth. 
My next question for those claiming special revelation from on high is, are you obedient to the word? I had a special. He came to me and he said, oh, what is your, what is your religious life? What, what is your life about? Because we find Amos 3.7, surely Yahweh Elohim will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Are you serving Yahweh in your life? Why would he reveal special truth to those who don't live it? Like the TV evangelist that comes on and says, oh, he revealed all this to me and I'm, you know, look at me. Uh, Do you keep the Sabbath? I keep Sunday. Do you keep the Sabbath? Well, I worship on Sunday. That's not good enough. Do you use his name? Do you honor his name? Or do you ignore his name? You think he's going to give you special insight, special truth, because you go a different direction from his word? How's that going to work? When they deny his laws, they aren't his servants. Amos says his servants, the prophets, get revealed to. Why would he give them special revelation if they're not even in his word, not even walking his direction, his way? Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me in that day, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name have cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works. There's the proof right there. you got to be legit, right? And he will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Iniquity just means sin, unrighteousness. Why would he give any special blessing, any special gift to those who are unrighteous? Well, he won't. Anyone he uses as a prophet or a conduit of truth will be especially close to him and in line with his will. It's the only way it works. We find some false prophets in the word and they got canceled out. That crazy term we keep hearing these days. But they were eliminated in one way or another because they weren't true to him. Ever wonder how the biblical writers could write virtually the same thing prophesy the same thing hundreds, well, maybe decades at least, apart and never having met each other. But the books they wrote harmonized perfectly. How did that happen? With amazing precision. That's the inspiration of the Spirit. So if your self-professed revelation contradicts inspired scripture, we must defer instead to the sacred holy word. Inviolate words of Yahweh. It's a slippery slope when you make yourself an authority, superseding the word because you believe in receiving special knowledge from Yahweh. That is the problem from the beginning. That's what derailed the church from the start. And the problem is many don't want to believe the word and take it at face value. There are certain, it's a smorgasbord. They want to pick and choose certain things, but not follow the whole word. They don't want to adhere to everything it says. There are entire denominations that overrule plain scripture in deference to their own church teachings. You know who they are. It's far more attractive to take a spiritual shortcut than the effort it takes to put our lives in obedient subjection to Yahweh. And his word and let his spirit influence the heart as it grows within. 
Acts 5.32, and we are his witnesses of these things, so, and so is also the Holy Spirit, whom Elohim have given to them that, finish it, obey, obey him, right, <laughs> exactly. Now, the New Catholic Encyclopedia makes this provocative statement regarding the Trinity teaching. I thought, I'll just go to the horse's mouth and see what they say, since they're the ones that have developed this doctrine. Quote, the formulation, one G.O.D. and three persons, was not solidly established, certainly not fully assimilated into Christian life and its profession of faith prior to the end of the fourth century. Imagine that. They admit it. It can't be in the Bible. They just admitted it because the Bible was finished probably after, just soon after the first century. Among the apostolic fathers, there had been nothing even remotely approaching such a mentality or perspective. You doubt, you doubt me? Go downstairs. We've got the Catholic Encyclopedia. You can read it. The Trinity teaching came along 300 years after the last book of the Bible was written. No wonder it's not in any source manuscript. But let's imagine that it is a legitimate truth. What about all those people? Millions? I don't know if it would be billions, but millions of people that lived before the 4th century, that lived before this was an accepted truth by the church. Wasn't that very fair to them? I mean, was that fair that they didn't know anything about it? They were just born at the wrong time? Shouldn't they have been given the same knowledge about a trinity? Wouldn't it be totally unjust and wrong to keep them essentially... In the dark about this main test doctrine. If the Trinity teaching is so critical and salvational, would Yahweh deprive millions of it just because they came along at the wrong time? He never did such a thing with any other important teaching. If you check out the RSB, chart located between the testaments that shows all these teachings in the New Testament were already in, in play in the Old Testament. Things like grace, having a law, having the law in one's heart. That's an Old Testament teaching. Obedience, more important than sacrificing. Salvation. These are all in both testaments of the Bible. Why wouldn't the Trinity be there? Well, it's not even in the New Testament. Why would it even be in the Old Testament? Old Testament believers knew that Yahshua was their Savior as much as we. They could read about him. They knew. They knew that he was prophesied to come, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 23, 6. They knew. They just hadn't seen him yet, but they had the hope. He even talked about they had the hope of salvation. Turn to Revelation twenty two eighteen, For I testify unto every man that hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, Elohim shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Well, that's sobering enough, isn't it? The seriousness of adding to the word is grave. Trying to exalt oneself as being a direct condiment of truth is something not to be toyed with. In Jeremiah 7, Yahweh was furious when Judah, on their own authority, added pagan worship aspects to their worship. What was Yahweh's response? 
Note the unspeakable sin of adding to Yahweh's commands and words and the punishment for it. Verse 31 to 33, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire to Moloch, to Moloch I added, that's what they were doing, which I commanded them not, neither it came into my heart. Neither came it into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall burn, bury in Tophet till they, uh, there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be for meat for the fowls of heaven, for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. The clear command not to add to Yahweh's word. Any special doctrine that a church comes up with is in Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it. Now, this is all the way back in Deuteronomy, all the way back in the Torah. The law, the second giving of the law. He says, don't add anything. Because he knew man has that proclivity to add the stuff and uh, make it uh, for whatever reason. And don't even diminish from it. Don't add, don't take away. That you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim, which I command you. I, if I were a, uh, I don't know, I, I'd be kind of fearful to be a Bible translator, even if I had a good knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. I'd be kind of fearful because if I say something wrong, put something wrong in there, um, what's going to happen, you know? Kind of fearful. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. And yet, willy-nilly, the church comes along and just adds its own doctrines. Who was it? Forgotten who was. Was it? Uh, someone said, uh, "Be careful when you translate the Bible, because one misprint might send someone to to Hades." I don't know. But anyway. Uh, you know, you've got to be very careful. And none of the apostles knew anything about a triune Elohim. They never talked about it. They never taught it. They never said anything about it. Yahshua never taught such a thing. You'd think that would be the first thing on his lips after the kingdom. And they talk about the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is about the kingdom. Half of the, what he's saying when he says good news, the evangel, is about the kingdom. But you never hear that either. You don't hear anybody talking about the kingdom, churchianity. Nobody talks about it. They don't even know what happens after this life. They don't tell you. It's clear as crystal. But then, you see, that would blow away other doctrines like going to heaven when it says you're going to be ruling here on this earth, being a priest on this earth. So they don't want to even bring it up because it, then it causes a whole, whole slew of problems. Anyway, Yasha never taught such thing. He never said, I, uh, you know, I am of the big three or something like that. I am equal to my father. In fact, he said, my father is greater than I, John 14, 28. Just the designation father and son talks volumes about headship. They're not equal. Father and son, they're not equal. Jude 3 tells us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, delivered in the Greek is aorist uh, passive participle, meaning the scriptures are a finished work. Finished work. Nothing more necessary. No new revelations in regard to basic truth have been given. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation, written at the end of the first century, sums it all up. Not three centuries later. 
could you add something specially? The Trinity doctrine, as well as Sunday worship, are both post-biblical institutions. They came after the Bible. So they were added, added doctrine. They came after the word was completed. They're added teachings. And Yahweh says, as we've said over and over, don't add to it. Psalm 119, 89 says, your word is settled in heaven. It's been finalized. It's all you need. His word stands forever, Isaiah 40, verse 8, and no tweaking allowed. But that doesn't seem to bother some of the major denominations who rely on their own teachings that rise above scripture. It's hard to debate with somebody who doesn't even follow the Bible. They have their own. We have to have a common basis, you know, common foundation if you want to discuss the Bible with uh, someone in this church who says, well, the church overrides that. The church is the authority now. So it's, it's a lost cause. They trust churchmen over the inspired word. You know, the Trinity is the most egregious in adding doctrine for this Roman church. Let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth again, from the ones who invented the three-in-one. Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 15, page 47. The Trinity is the term employed to signify the central doctrine of the Christian religion. The truth that in the unity of the G.O.D. head, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three persons being truly distinct one from another. Thus, in the words of the Athanasian Creed, now they're, they're relying on a man-made creed. We're going to get into that in a minute. The Father is G.O.D., the Son is G.O.D., and the Holy Spirit is G.O.D., and yet there are not three G.O.D.s, but one G.O.D., In this trinity of persons, the Son is begotten of the Father by an eternal generation, whatever that means. He's begotten by eternal generation. And the Holy Spirit proceeds by an eternal procession from the Father. What does that mean? Eternal procession. I mean, you just just bamboozle people with lots of big words and, oh, it just kind of collapsed. Their mind collapsed. Okay, you got so much more knowledge than I do. In Scripture, there are yet no single term by which, there is no yet, no single term by which the three divine persons are denoted together. I'm still quoting Catholic Encyclopedia. The Greek word of which the Latin Trinitas is a translation is first found, first found in Theophilus of Antioch about A.D. 180. So this is 200, well, at least 100 years after, almost 200 years. He speaks of the trinity of G.O.D., the Father. And then there are the charismatics who teach that the Holy Spirit guides individuals in ways disconnected from the word. You know, they have their own thing going too. From them, we often hear that G.O.D. talked to me and told me and overriding the scriptures in the process. Again, I'll say that's nice, but I don't need that revelation. I've got it in the Bible. And if it contradicts the word, uh, you better stop right there. The Bible has many verses showing the supremacy of the Father over the Son, denying the Trinity. Yahshua, see, the Trinity says three in one, co-eternal, co-equal. Both have the same, both on the same level, which the Bible contradicts over and over. For instance, Matthew 19, 17. Why call me good, Yahshua said, there is none good but one. That's the Father. He's distinguishing himself from the Father. 
Then he does the same thing, John 14, 28, for my father is greater than I. You can't get any more plain, can you? My doctrine, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me, John 7, 16. So I'm only teaching what he gave me to teach. I didn't come up even with it myself. I'm just expanding or giving his teachings to you in the way I live my life and how I live the word. But it's his teachings, not mine. If I were equal, I would be teaching my teachings. And then Matthew 26, 39, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is where he's about to be impaled. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Your will supersedes my will. Not equal. Mark 13, 32, But of that day and that hour knows no man. Now, not even the angels in heaven, neither the, neither the Son, but the Father. He's the only one that knows when is going to return. The day and the hour of Yahshua's return. He's the only one. Nobody else. Not even the angels. But especially not even Yahshua. He hasn't revealed it to Yahshua. And finally, uh, 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of Elohim. He's not sitting on his lap. They're not the same, you know, on the same chair. He's at the right hand. He's like a right-hand man. That's what the Old Testament calls him. He's the Dabar, the spokesman for Yahweh. The Trinity was a work in progress. It was anything but an instant, clear-out, clear-cut doctrine for our scriptures. It came from a politically manipulated, bloody, and deadly back-and-forth process before it finally arrived as an accepted doctrine of the church. And the same thing went on with Sunday worship. You know, it was, I mean, you go back into the, the history of uh, religion and uh, Bible-believing Bible religions. Same thing with Sunday worship. It wasn't accepted wholeheartedly, even when the church, the Pope or whatever, you know, Constantine or whatever, made it official. They struggled hundreds of years with those that would keep the Sabbath, not Sunday. They didn't go along with that. You can go back to Europe and look at the history of it. Some of the groups that would not keep Sunday and died for it. It was Constantine's empire where theological differences regarding Yahshua began to manifest. There were two major opponents that surfaced in this thing and debated whether he was a created being, that's a guy named Arius, his doctrine, or co-equal and co-eternal to Yahweh, his father, which is a doctrine of Athanasius, the, the opponent to this guy, Arius. They, uh, they had a long-standing dispute over this. The warfare, theological warfare of the two doctrinal camps became intense. Now, I have to ask, if it's in the Bible, why does it have to be wrangled over for decades and whatever, if it's just right there. Unless someone's just being plain stubborn. But you see, they haven't even really hammered it out to everybody's satisfaction. It didn't make sense to a lot of them either, but they pushed it anyway. Constantine realized that his empire, I remember he's the emperor of the Western Roman, I'm sorry, the Eastern Roman Empire. He realized that his empire was being threatened by a doctrinal rift here. He called a council at Nicaea in 325 to resolve the dispute. He didn't want problems in his empire, but it was really causing problems. Only 18% of the existing bishops attended. 
And old Constantine, he manipulated, coerced, and threatened the council to be sure it voted for what he wanted, what he believed, rather than a consensus. Here again, doctrine by vote, doctrine by consensus, doctrine by politics, really what it amounts to. Not unlike the court hijinks that led to the murder of Yahshua, all that fake stuff going on. Everybody's moving and adjusting and, and uh, manipulating things to go their way. Murder him, murder him, take his life. How, why? Well, because we wouldn't be saying that if it weren't true. Well, that's a good answer. Why? Pilate want to know why. Well, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be there. See, Pilate had a problem, and that's why he washed his hands of it. He, he was already in trouble with Caesar. Uh, he goofed up a couple times before and probably said one more time and you're out. So he had a political reason to please the people, even though it didn't make any sense to him, even though killing Yahshua, an innocent man, why would I do that? In his mind and heart, he knew it wasn't right, but politics took, took charge. He feared for his position. Anyway, it's kind of like that. You know, there was all sorts of nefarious things going on in the trial of Yahshua. It was really sad. But the majority bishops then voted for the doctrine rather than face banishments. Here we got, <laughs> they put the screws to him and say, look, you don't vote this way and uh, you're out of here. You're out of the country. You know. On the losing side was Arius, who was condemned and exiled. He is interested, uh, it is interesting that even now, the Eastern and Western Orthodox churches still don't agree on this subject of the Trinity. Two of the bishops who voted pro-Arius were also exiled, and his writings were destroyed. And Constantine decreed that anyone who is caught with his writings will be put to death. So it's doctrine by force, coercion, fear. Even with the adoption of the Nicene Pro-Trinity Creed, problems continued to grow. We weren't done yet. The Arian anti-Trinity faction began to regain control. Arius was banished, but his people started to get more control, and finally they became so powerful that Constantine restored them and denounced the Athanasius group. So now he's a flip-flopper. Again, political. Political reasons he's doing this. Arius's exile was ended, along with the bishops who sided with him. It was now Athanasius who would be banished. This is how this doctrine came about, brethren. When Constantine died, his son reinstated the Arian teaching and condemned the Athanasius group. But we're still not done. Satan never gives up. If there's any chance, maybe it's not the right time. He'll wait till the right time and he'll strike again. Ultimately, the Arians misused their power and they were overthrown by, by the anti Trinitarian faction. Widespread bloodshed and killing ensued. In 381, Emperor Theodosius, a Trinitarian, convened a council in Constantinople, and only, by the way, only Trinitarian bishops were invited. <laughs> this is a travesty. So, anyway, 150 bishops voted to 
alter the Nicene Creed to include the Holy Spirit as being part of the heavenly majesty. Now the Holy Spirit is a person, basically, by political decree. This is the history of the doctrine. It springs from deceit, corrupt politics, a pagan emperor, and warring factions that cause death and bloodshed. My question, first of all, is why was a pagan emperor deciding doctrine for the church? Why was he doing that? Well, eventually, the, uh, the bishops, the, you know, the pope, he gained political control also over the empire. So you have another conflict going on between the king and the leaders of the church, but that's another story. But that's where a lot of other craziness comes in. But that's the age-old question. Why did a church that believed the Bible bow to the dictates of a ruling worldly empire emperor for being out for political gain and expediency. Why did they accept that? The Trinity doctrine was nothing new, by the way. It was absorbed from heathenism, and you can look back into history and find a lot of different religious uh, religions in different countries, pagan countries, had trinities. For instance, in the Hindu faith came Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. In Greece, they had Zeus, Poseidon, and Adonis. The Phoenicians worshipped, I might need some help with this, Alumus, Alusaurus, and Elion. Never heard of them before, but I found it in a reference. Rome worshipped, you know, Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto. In Germanic nations, they were called Woden, Thor, and Fricka, or Fricka. But it was the Egyptians, the Egyptians, with their Horus, Isis, and Osiris, and other trinities. They had a bunch of trinities. But it was the Egyptians that had the most influence on the Christian trinity notion. Interesting is the fact, in fact, it had a lot of influence on a lot of doctrines of the uh, early church that weren't biblical. Interesting, though, is that both Arius and Athanasius came from Alexandria, Egypt. I wonder where they got the idea, or at least Athanasius. Wonder, you think there could have been some connections there? The Trinity makes an idol out of Yahweh. It's no different from making a graven image from your hands as it is to make Yahweh into a diagram in your mind. It's the nature of man to do so. I just noticed the uh, latest Biblical Archaeology Review magazine I opened this up and I was dumbfounded. It has an article in here. The face of Yahweh? This, this idol. They found these idols not far from Jerusalem. These uh, images. And they would ask that question. I guess they were saying that, is that what these people think they're worshiping when they, they're worshiping Yahweh when they worship these things? I guess that's what they mean. I hope that's all they mean because it's almost blasphemous. But man's always want to have an idol, always have something to worship instead of the word. The Trinity and Nicene Creed are the founding documents to the man-made organization of religion that has suppressed and kept fear in people. 
upon the creed, many heresies followed. Well, we look at Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended up into the heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Two people, two names. Not one, two, if you can tell. Yahweh's name is different from Yahshua's. Why don't they have the same name if they're the same person? Proverbs 8.22 shows that Yahshua cannot be the father. Yahweh possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. Two different individuals. 8.23, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. Obviously, this is speaking of his son. When there were no depths, when I was brought forth, when there were no fountains bounding the water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. How can he be the same one? Who did he bring himself forth? How, how does that work? Well, as yet he had, he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And then we read in Matthew 3.17, A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Brethren, after 2,000 years, many still debate, still debate, can't read and understand plain scripture, whether Yasha was not or was the son or was not Yahweh. Or that he was still divine when he walked this earth. Whether he was Yahweh in the flesh. Whether he, it was Yahweh himself who died on the stake. They still debate that. You know, if we trust the word, the facts are going to be evident. We can clearly see what's true or not. We have a Savior who came to earth to die for the penalty of our sin. Took our penalty away. We should be humbled in that Understanding in that truth and not ever be rebellious toward him or his father, but humble in all things. He's not the father, but the son. Two separate beings and a heavenly majesty. The nameless Holy Spirit, by the way, if he was a person, I think he'd have a name, but he doesn't. I should say it doesn't. It's the rock power by which they do things by which they influence thoughts, by which they create, by which they do all these things. Wiping out an army by, you know, a natural catastrophe. It's the Ruach spirit. It's his spirit. that, And I believe his spirit is, he says his spirit in all, is in all things. I believe his spirit is what holds everything together in creation. Some have suspected maybe it's the, the nuclear force between between atoms, in atoms, and between molecules that hold everything together. What else explains gravity? Can't see it. You can't test it. 
All you can do is see it working. You, you can't put it in a test tube. What is that? Is that Yahweh's spirit? What else can it be? If you really believe that Yahweh is creator, you have to believe that he does it by these things, these powers. But he certainly didn't make the spirit another being. And that's why it's called the Holy Spirit. We also see, you know, people calling it the Holy Ghost. You know, that's an old English Middle, middle Ages term. But you see, ghost says person, right? Holy ghost. A ghost is like an apparition, a person. So they use that when it's, that's not what the Bible says. It's a ruach, a force that Yahweh uses to accomplish his will. May Yahweh bless you.